0: Uh, dearly father we thank you for the reality that the gospel is not the truth that that we just just the truth that we preach but it's the truth that we stand in lord help us to be a people who are transformed by that gospel and that we might make that gospel known we thank you and we love you we pray this in jesus name amen well good morning it's good to be here good to worship with you uh as late mentioned earlier this uh this morning we begin what has traditionally been called our outreach month. Needless to say, it's not the only month we, we consider outreach or we do outreach, but we feel like it's a good opportunity to remind us of our, ourselves of the importance of making our faith known. And I think we need times like this to make sure the important things never fall too far off the radar. Because the reality is like every month is outreach month. Uh, We should constantly be doing that. So in a sense, we remind you of outreach this month so that you'll focus on outreach every month. Kind of made me think about how sometimes you'll see those advertisements for some national food day like it's national pizza day. Um, For instance, this Wednesday, October 4th is national taco day. By the way, I had to look that up. So some of you think like, because of my idolatrous love for tacos, I knew that or that it was in my calendar. It wasn't, it is now obviously on yearly repeat, but it wasn't then. But this week I'm going to see those advertisements from Mexican restaurants telling me that's National Taco Day. Um, But obviously their hope isn't that you would buy tacos one day a year. They need you to buy it all the time and um, every day should be Taco Day. But the point is we we focus on outreach this month because we want to focus on outreach every month. Um, and then so that's what we're going to do uh, this this morning we're going to take time to remind ourselves of our mission to make gospel-centered disciples who exalt and proclaim Christ. Now in many ways on Sundays we'll do what we've always done. For example, we'll continue our study through Galatians every week as we as we consider the true gospel in a world of false gospels. We feel that coincides nicely with this emphasis on outreach. But there will be some extra things that we think will be helpful also as you consider what our outreach will look like in your life. So throughout the month, we'll give updates on our missionaries and other ministries we're involved with. Uh, so for example, later in the service, you're, you're gonna hear a testimony uh, and, and how as a church, we should try to be involved in foster care, why, why that should be important to us. But I wanted to start off by letting you know a few of the things going on so you can kind of keep them in mind um, as we consider how to really apply God's word this morning. So since this is the off week of small groups we're going this tuesday night we're going to have our nightlight it's a chance for us to come together and learn together and the specific focus on this nightlight will be outreach and evangelism Uh, So the night is pretty simple. We'll come together for a time of worship, and then you'll split off, and you'll get to choose one of five seminars. One is on workplace evangelism, kind of thinking through the challenges of sharing your faith at work and how you can do so faithfully. One is on apologetics. This will be an introduction on defending your faith and answering some of those objections by unbelievers. One is on campus outreach, how you can proclaim Christ and reach your school. It's for anyone, but we really want to encourage uh, the junior hires, high school college students to go to that one we we'll have one on missions and kind of the call of the church to 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 be working towards the great end of God's glory by seeking the salvation of people throughout the world and lastly, one just simply on sharing the gospel. So uh, a lot of us want to share our faith. We're not sure how. This will kind of cover some of the basic aspects of the gospel and some variety of ways to share it. So we really want to encourage you to come out Tuesday night here at the church, um, and you can find more information online. Beyond that, we have a lot of outreach opportunities this month. In a couple of weeks, we have our annual Feed My Starving Children event. October 14th, uh, th- or, sorry, Friday and Saturday. And that weekend, we're gonna convert our gym into a food packing plant and package over 100,000 meals to not only alleviate hunger, but to use that love as a vehicle for the gospel. It's a neat time, uh, anyone, almost anyone can be involved. We've taken our kids since they were in elementary school. It's really an encouragement and it's a good evangelistic opportunity. My daughter every year has invited some of her, her soccer teammates to come and they come, you know, they don't come to anything else, but they'll come to that event. So that's a blessing. Today, I believe is the last day the lighthouse gets to register uh, with priority. After that, it's gonna be open to the public so other people can be involved. We wanna encourage you to be a part of that. We have our Spectrum Friendship Partners. Uh, There's a meeting on October 22nd to introduce it. But basically, Spectrum, our ministry to international students, is looking for Lighthouse members, families, or or individuals, college agent up, to serve as friends to to some of the international students that we're ministering to. Uh, You have the opportunity to kind of just love them and spend time with them. help them practice their English, give them advice on career and things like that. Um, It's not too big of a commitment, but we think it's a really a neat way to be involved in people's lives. Uh, So again, you can get information online. We have a golf tournament, October 28th, Uh, another good chance to invite people who may not normally want to visit church. Uh, I think it's a scramble uh, style tournament and they'll come back here to the church afterwards for a time of dinner and fellowship. Baptism service, October 29th. I think it's really a good service to invite people to, because they just get to hear stories of grace. Uh, We have so many getting baptized that I think they've given me like 10 minutes to share. So that's a plus, right? And with how fast I talk, that's like 20 or 30 minutes of content. So invite people to hear the gospel that Sunday. And lastly is our fall festival, October 31st, our Halloween alternative. We have a carnival for the kids. There'll be games, bounce houses, snacks, a candy bag, and of course a gospel presentation. Uh, so you can be involved in different ways. Please invite people, especially those who don't go to church. We would love for them to come. You can also volunteer online starting today to be to you know help man the booths and help with food and things like that. We need a ton of people to make this happen. Uh, and lastly, please bring candy. You can drop that off in the foyer. I think we love unbelievers by sending their kids home with a lot of sugar. So let's do that. Um, And again, all that information is on our website, specifically under our events page. So you can go there and get more stuff, uh, get to know more stuff with that. Okay, with that, turn with me to Galatians chapter one. Now with all the opportunities to grow in evangelism and get involved in outreach this month, I think it's appropriate that our study this morning is really going to answer the question of why is the gospel so significant? And why is it important that we share it with others? I mean, we're gonna commit a month to this, uh, but why? Now, it may sound self-explanatory, we are a church after all, what else would we be about but the gospel? But before we assume this sermon is a bit redundant, let me encourage you to consider this question. If it goes without saying that the gospel is so important and the sharing is vital, why doesn't that describe more of our lives? Why do we try to to live comfortable lives, focus kind of on establishing our kingdoms instead of really desperately wanting people to enter God's kingdom? Why do we get caught up in the, the busyness of life and think little of what's going on around us or how many perishing souls we cross paths with every single day? Why are we more angry at our unbelieving culture than grieving for our unbelieving culture who need Jesus? Why do we have friends and family who don't know Christ and yet we don't do much about it? So the, yeah, yes, the direction of this message isn't gonna be surprising. We, we need to be a church that makes Christ known. but At the same time, I don't think it could be more pressing. And so to really think about why the gospel should matter so much to us, we're gonna look at why it matters so much to Paul. Now, if you remember, Paul writes this letter to the Galatian churches because false teachers had entered the church teaching a compromised gospel. They've been called Judaizers, and specifically, they were a group of professing Jewish Christians, and they were arguing that Christians still needed to to live according to the Mosaic or the Old Testament law, and that Gentiles or non-Jews had to be converted not only to Christianity, but to Judaism. But as we've said on numerous occasions over the last few weeks, when you add something to the gospel, you take away from the gospel. A compromised gospel is a counterfeit gospel. So Paul is writing to to talk about how in the true gospel, really the only gospel, we have been set free to live free. Now in the specific section we're looking at this morning and next week as well, Paul is going to share his testimony and explain why it actually provides evidence that the, the gospel of grace is true, And this is why he preaches it. Okay, but here's what I want us to consider. Paul wasn't just defending the gospel theoretically. Like it's not just a belief system. This is not some trivial theological debate. This is not about a struggle for power in the church. Okay, this gospel mattered to Paul, right? Paul would defend this gospel. He would suffer greatly for this gospel. And ultimately he would give his life for this gospel. And so think about that for a moment. The gospel is so important to Paul that he would die for it. I mean, how many things, honestly, how many things in this world are you willing to die for? What is that important to you? So we, we need to think like that. We need to be like that. And that kind of leads to our key idea. The gospel that gave me life is worth my life. I want you to all consider that statement for a moment and ask yourself if you can say it with faith and conviction. The gospel that gave me life, it is worth my life. Now I'll read through the text as we go, but let's look at four reasons the gospel is worth our lives. First, because the gospel offers true hope in a world of false gospels. Now we've already spent time discussing these false gospels because uh, the question isn't really if people believe in the gospel, but kind of what version of the gospel. Remember the gospel simply means good news and everyone has their version of the good news. It's what they believe will make life right. What they believe uh, will offer some version of salvation, whether that's heaven or love or security or pleasure. And so for some, it is like formalized religion or it's a belief in morality and the innate goodness of God. But for many, it's just their good news is what's gonna make them happy. It's occupational achievement or successful kids or getting into a certain college or morality or relationships. It's, It's again, what they believe they need to be secure or have meaning and hope and joy. But remember how Paul describes these gospels in the previous passage. He calls it a different gospel, a distortion of the gospel, a contrary gospel, right? He's not messing around. He's saying these are so dangerous. These are fatal gospels because they are false gospels. Look what he says in verses 11 and 12 of our passage. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So notice Paul is offering a contrast. There is the the false gospel, which he describes as man's gospel, and then there is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in this we're reminded that what determines if the gospel we hold to is true is if it's ultimately about Christ or if it's about us. If it's about His grace or our efforts if it results in His glory, or us just getting what we think we need. But Paul says false gospels, they're man-made, right? That's why he's saying this is not man's gospel. And so consider that for a moment, We, we have a choice. We can look to the quote, good news, offered by sinful finite humanity that has a fundamental misunderstanding of the problems of this world and pursue its faulty, foolish version of salvation, or we can look to the gospel and like Paul, have our encounter with the risen Christ. We can trust that the creator of the world knows what's wrong with his creation and and offers real hope and real salvation. So again, here Paul's point, there is the true gospel and there is every other gospel. Obviously, if you don't know Christ, this is really important, but even for us who are believers, remember that we too are in danger of false gospels. We're in danger of living for the wrong things. We're in danger of pursuing our idols or whatever version of happiness we seek. We're in danger of placing our hope in better circumstances or better relationships or better possessions. As we've often described it, we're in danger of trying to live that Jesus plus something kind of life. Like that, that foolish notion that we, we do need Jesus, but kind of plus something to really be happy. I mean, as a, simple application to see that it really plays out in our lives, think about this morning and evangelism. False gospels hinder our commitment to outreach and evangelism, right? If if I pursue false gospels, it's going to devastate my willingness to share the true gospel. I mean, earlier I asked the question like, if it goes without saying that the gospel is important, that sharing is vital, then why doesn't that describe more of our lives? And the answer is that we pursue the wrong things. We live for idols and false gospels and what they promise. So for example, if my good news is about relationships and people liking me, I mean, that's what really matters to me. I'm not gonna jeopardize that by sharing the good news of Christ. I'm not gonna let my coworkers think I'm ignorant. I'm not gonna upset my sweet unsaved grandmother. I'm not gonna invite tension into my relationship with my best friend. If my if my gospel is people liking me, my good news, that's gonna limit me sharing the gospel. If my good news is my kid's success, if that's what matters to me, then I'm gonna be consumed with them and their activities and have little time to really think about sharing the good news of Christ. I mean, remember the devil doesn't just win if we reject the gospel, he's pretty pleased if we're simply so busy that we ignore it. Or if my good news is about academic or athletic or occupational achievement, like if that's what's truly important to me, it's going to get my greatest loyalty and attention and time and resources. And then we're going to think little of my, our call to share the good news of Christ, right? Our greatest devotions will get our greatest attentions. And so for many of us, we're so consumed by, by other things that evangelism is far off our radar that it barely registers. So you kind of see the picture. If you struggle with evangelism, and most of us do at different points, trust that you're holding to some false gospel. Something's too important to you. It's a false hope and it's taking a priority over Christ. So what are the false gospels that hinder your evangelism? Paul is saying there is this true gospel, this gospel that we need to believe and to hold to and to trust in. I think it's important too that this isn't just about us as individuals. I think as the church, we can ask the same question. Like what will our church be about? Again, the gospel is the easy answer, but what will hinder us? Because if we're about the wrong things, um, if we, we have our own versions of the false gospel, it's going to devastate ministry. Like if we focus on numbers and attendance, or if our focus is just inward, like let's look after our own members, and we're never looking outward to a world in need of Christ. If we do that, we fail the gospel. So there's true gospels and there's are false gospels. So the gospel offers true hope in a world of false hope. Second reason uh, the gospel is worth our lives because the gospel has the power to transform in a world of brokenness. Now, one of Paul's arguments in the next section is that his life is so changed that you can't help but notice the difference. Like he stood out for his faith. Like if you notice Paul, that's what would stick out to you. So think about that for a moment. What would you stand out for? How are you different? Being multi-ethnic, I know what it's like to stand out. My father's Japanese, my mother's Caucasian, so I don't exactly blend in in a lot of places. All right, I'll be going to Japan next month to teach counseling at CBI, the seminary there, visit our church plant. And trust me, I don't blend in 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 Japan. Like I was there and one time someone asked me for directions and I'm like, really? Like you looked around and you thought me, like I'm gonna be able to help you out at all. On the other hand, a while back I spoke in Alabama at a church that was uh, almost entirely Caucasian. So I told my wife before we left, um, hey, I'm gonna start the conference with this joke. You are so welcoming. I don't know how you knew I was a visitor. It's hilarious, trust me. <laughs> and she told me, oh, you can't do that. Yeah, you don't, don't say that. And then I thought, okay, you're right. I can't, that's, that's, that's dumb. And then I got there and again, no one is looking like me. And I thought, what does my wife know? She's never been to Alabama. So I went with that joke. I said, I don't know how you knew I was a visitor. Crickets, like not, not even a chuckle. I mean, it was silence. It's like, it was like an Asian church. I had somehow brought that to Alabama. So again, I, I didn't exactly blend. Most of us know what it's like to stand out for different reasons what should most stand out about us is the gospel. And actually, this is Paul's argument. He's like, do you want to know the gospel is true? Well, then look at my life. So again, he's continuing verse 13. He says, for, in other words, he's saying, this is my proof. He writes, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my father's but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Basically, again, he's saying, do you want to know that the gospel is true? Then just look at my life. Like I was trying to destroy the church and now I love it. I hated Christ and now I preach Christ. And so our argument is pretty simple, right? His life was evidence. My son and I recently, we drove by a shop that, it was a shop that makes signs and their sign was broken and it was old. And I feel like, man, that's a missed opportunity. Like you make signs, you should have a great, amazing sign there. So do you see the picture Paul saying, do you, do you wanna know how you can tell my gospel is true? Then just look at my life, right? And, and again, it's because when Paul got saved, it wasn't like he was investigating the claims of Christ. He wasn't a seeker, he wasn't even agnostic. It says he was trying to destroy Christianity. Listen again to those words. I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Now there's different ways to look at that, but imagine that were happening today. What if someone, because of religious beliefs, wasn't simply in disagreement with other beliefs, but was actively trying to destroy them through things like imprisonment and violence and even murder. They would be a terrorist. I mean, this was Paul. He didn't get invited to Easter Sunday. He didn't pick up a track and get saved. He wasn't searching for the meaning of life. He was hunting down Christians, seeking to throw them in prison and even have them killed. I mean, he was there when Stephen was murdered. It says he approved of that execution. Remember, Stephen was stoned, It doesn't mean he was high, but it means that there was this mob and then they picked up stones the size of baseballs and threw them as hard as they could at this man until he died because he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus. And Paul, he approved of that. I mean, it's hard to even picture standing there and watching that, right? I mean, in our minds, Paul sat there and he watched and he believed it wasn't just okay, that it was right and it was good, and that is dark and that is disturbing, and that was Paul's life. And yet I say it was his life because that's what Paul says, right? He says, you remember my former life, but how do you get, how do you get to say that? Like, if, if, if you've murdered someone, it seems like that's pretty hard to put in the rearview mirror. And like, if we were talking, I said, well, by the way, I was a terrorist. I had some Christians thrown in prison. I even killed some. Well, what do you then talk about after that? But Paul says, that was my formal life. Why? Because of the grace of the gospel. Listen to verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and he was called, who has called me by his grace. The only thing that could change Paul would be the grace of God. I mean, Paul was a sinner like all of us, right? But sin is not just the wrong things we do. It's the disease that corrupts our entire being, meaning that Paul couldn't save himself. In fact, he didn't even know he needed saving. The ruin of sin was so dark and so deep that he thought he was going to be first in line to get into heaven, not realizing he was on that hell bound race. His only hope then was the very grace of God. God's grace is his unmerited kindness, his power at work in us who are completely undeserving of it. And so Paul needed grace. He he needed grace to have his eyes open to his own depravity. He needed grace to have his heart open to faith. And this is what happened when Paul met Jesus face to face. Remember that Paul met Jesus on the Damascus road and yet remember what he's doing, he's on his way to persecute Christians. And yet when he met Jesus, it wasn't like Jesus said, hey, you just got to do better or knock it off or be more behaved. It was Jesus revealing to Paul through grace, the way of salvation. And this is the gospel for those who put their faith in him, Jesus went to the cross for us and, and suffered the punishment we deserved, And not only took our punishment, but gave us his righteousness. I mean, God looked at Jesus and treated him like he committed our sins, like with all that ugliness, all that, that ruin. And he looked at us and treats us like we have lived His Jesus' perfect, righteous life. And that is grace. And yet that grace doesn't just save us, it changes us. And so to the point, only grace makes sense of Paul's life. He was not good, like the false teacher said you needed to be. He was transformed. He went from hell to heaven, from from terrorist to missionary, from, from persecutor to preacher. This was his evidence of the gospel. Now, I think this provides an encouragement and a challenge when it comes to our ministry. The encouragement is this, and it's pretty simple. The gospel saves us, the gospel transforms us, the gospel uses us. I mean, the gospel brings help and hope to our brokenness. It doesn't matter what you've done, what you believe, how many times you've failed. The gospel saves and changes us. Maybe even now you come in this morning and you feel the weight of your sin. You feel like it defines you. Maybe it's your scarlet letter and if the gospel means it is your former life. Not that you'll never struggle, but it doesn't define who you are. And not just that, I mean, it would be one thing if God saved you and changed you, that would be enough. We could celebrate forever in heaven, but then for God to use us, like to let us be a part of his gospel ministry. I mean, before this, his conversion, no one was looking at Paul and thinking, this guy is gonna do the great things for God. Christians were just turning and running. They didn't want everyone to be around him. And yet he becomes one of the most significant names in the history of the church. This is our God. But not only is there an encouragement, but there is a challenge. Our lives should only be truly explainable by the gospel. Again, that's Paul's argument. You want proof of the gospel? Look at my life, it can only be explained by the gospel. Could the same be said of you? Does anyone look at your life and think their life just doesn't make sense without Christ? Because let's be honest, it doesn't take Christ to explain why someone might want a romantic relationship or want kids who who go to the best colleges or who want to get ahead of work or go on nice vacations. That describes just about everyone in our culture. So again, what in your life can only be described by the work of the gospel? And you may think, well, that was Paul and he was so different, he was a terrorist and all these things, but maybe just start here. Could you live in some way that is radical from the culture? Like, could you be radical in your joy? Right, in a time of political and racial unrest, of precarious economics, could you be unique in your joy? Like, could you show up tomorrow morning at work uh, and be different? Like, people notice that you're different from everyone else. Could you be radical in your conviction with truth, holding it tightly regardless of what the world says? Like, I'm gonna stand on this no matter how much difficulty it brings me. Could you be radical in your generosity? helping others, keeping missionaries on the field, supporting the church? Could you be radical in your hope in sufferings, right? In the middle of your personal sufferings, could your radical hope say something about your savior to a watching world? What will your life say about Christ? And again, I don't want us to to just ask this about ourselves as individuals, we should ask this uh, of ourselves as a church. How as a church will we live as a people radically transformed by the gospel? Now there's different ways, but I think one way we can do this is how we steward our resources, right? Because I think that says something about what God has done in us and what he means to us when we, can, when we, can make, uh, when we make sure that the ministry is not actually about us. Because honestly, it would be so simple to kind of just invest our resources here, like in this building and taking care of our people. But if we're going to be a church that can only be explained by the gospel, then we need to be about the gospel, even if it comes at a high cost. And so let me just share briefly some of the things that we're doing with our resources. We don't update you too often, maybe not often enough, but I feel like it is the money you've invested in this ministry. And so let me mention a few of things that we're trying to do, especially outside of Lighthouse. So we've shared this in the past, but at some point, Back in the day, we made a commitment that a certain percentage of our budget would go to gospel ministries outside of Lighthouse. We would just give it away to people people or ministries we're trying to support. It's increased over the years, and at this point, it means that we'll commit almost a half a million dollars to ministry outside of our church this year. Now, half of that goes to Mercy Ministries, those are ministries that do gospel ministry in a way that either alleviates suffering or ministers in areas that there's limited resources. And I'll share more about that next week because that's actually one of Paul's uh, points in the next passage. But the other half goes to kingdom ministries. And this is not necessarily to those who are suffering, but we're trying to invest in gospel ministries that the desire to see the expansion of the kingdom. So for example, we have our two church plans, one in Dallas, one in Nagoya, Japan. Dallas is currently independent, but Japan will likely be a fairly long-term financial commitment in light, not only the difficulty of ministry, but uh, of the great need. I just remember that Japan is considered the second largest unreached people group in the world. And so there's this incredible need there. So we're supporting them. We're sending another team in a couple of weeks to serve them. Beyond that, we're supporting CBI. It's a seminary there that's re- committed to raising up a generation of church leaders. We're helping them not only financially, uh, but we help them to establish, and now we're helping them to further their biblical counseling program. So they're doing some exciting things. They have, I think, maybe the first website of biblical counseling in Japan and things like that. I'll go again to teach there next month. I'm looking forward to that. We're also investing in translation projects. So like when we teach counseling here, we have like hundreds of books we could point people to. They have almost none. And so we've been financially supporting that. We helped to, to get uh, instruments of the Redeemer's hands translated and they gave away thousands of copies that we paid for. Um Ed Welch is caring for one another. There's another half a dozen that are in the works. And we feel like that's a really good long-term investment. So even if, when we're not there, whatever, they'll have these resources. Beyond these things, our elders and staff really have a heart to build up smaller churches. So um, having been a small church, knowing those unique struggles, now that we are a medium-sized church, we really want to invest there. And obviously that, again, that's not something that builds up your name, right? When you, you don't get well-known by investing in small churches, but this is really part of our heart and our joy so, for example, last year we sponsored a conference for free for pastors from dozens and dozens of different, uh, churches on gospel hope for pastoral pressures. I don't know if you heard there was this thing called the pandemic and it was not good on pastors. And, uh, we literally had people coming who were like weeks away from quitting. Like that's, like that's how, how beat up and, and discouraged they were. And we had a chance to, to encourage them through the word, to walk with them, um, to support them. Of course, we have our Pathways of Grace Conference that we held last year also, uh, that focused on uh, building up churches to love well those affected by disability. Again, part of the heart of our church, but something that we want to invest our money into as well. There's other things that we're committed to and working on, but just know that in the end, our hope is that it would display what the gospel has done in us, right? Because it does take a measure of faith. Like we still have our own needs and and costs, the the lease of this building, staff salaries, various costs of ministry. So giving away that much comes with the cost. It comes with a measure of risk. But again, our commitment is to the gospel and to not not to ourselves. We hope that people look at this church and think the only way that, the only thing that makes sense of it is the gospel. I do hope you'll consider how you can give generously to the church and to ministries. Um, and honestly, it doesn't bother me to challenge you to be generous because more than I'm encouraging just to give, I'm encouraging you to lean into the gospel and to enjoy the freedom that Paul is going to talk about in this letter, right? Believe me when I say there, there's such a blessing to being a generous people. Some of you know that. I think some of you are missing out on that, um, but let the gospel change you in that area. Okay, third reason the gospel is worth our lives. Because the gospel demonstrates undeserved love in a world of transactional loves. The gospel demonstrates undeserved love in a world of transactional loves. Now, we've already talked about the gospel and what it means in terms of its power, how it brings forgiveness and transformation. But we must not forget that the gospel doesn't just accomplish something, it actually says something. In other words, it teaches us something about God and specifically, it tells us about the undeserved love that God gives us. And this is important because that kind of love is really uncommon in our world. We have this older, first-generation Japanese neighbors who we've tried to reach out to. Everyone's told we'll do something for them or help them. And and sometimes we'll bring them food. Uh, One time, a little while back, I was grilling something. My wife said, we should bring them food. They do, they come back and I tell her, "You, you understand we've just indebted them to us. Like they're for sure gonna bring us something in return. And of course, the next day, knock on the door, they come, their food was better than what we gave them. Um, It makes me want to continue to give them food. That's the nature of the world's love, right? If you give, you get, if you get, you give. It's, it's It's what's about, what's earned and deserved. But look at how Paul describes his salvation. Verse 13 again, you've heard of how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. His rebellion and sin were obvious in that case. He continues though in verse 14, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. Here his sin was not so obvious, but just as deadly. He was talking about his self-righteous life, how in pride he he almost had greater faith in religion than God himself, that he believed that he could earn God's favor. And so think about kind of that, uh, about his life to this point. What did Paul earn? Like what did he deserve? how should God respond, right? He he deserved judgment and punishment. Okay, so he thought he was earning heaven what he'd earned, what was hell. But look at what Paul writes in verses 15 and 16. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. Again, it's that picture of grace, the undeserved kindness of God. That's what we looked at when we discussed the gospel. But for this point, I want you to notice that phrase, he was pleased to reveal his son to me. He was pleased. It was not begrudgingly or reluctantly. We could translate it, it brought him pleasure to do this. But think about what what Paul's saying. He's not saying it brought God great pleasure when Paul preached the gospel, or he served in the church, or when he sacrificed for ministry, though that was true but it was when he was an enemy and a rebel, when he was living self-righteously, believing himself worthy of God himself, when he was persecuting believers, having Christians killed, when he was trying with everything in his being to destroy the church, it was in that moment that it brought pleasure to God to reveal grace to him. And it was more than just forgiveness of salvation. It wasn't God saying, okay, you can go to heaven. He was bringing Paul into relationship with himself. And it should be like just so stunning because we're not like that. And for those of you parents, have you ever thought, it's when my kids are having a meltdown and they're disrespectful and they're being selfish and they're ungrateful. That is when I love to show them grace and kindness. Like I know many of you are more godly than me, but that's not when I wanna show kindness. And yet that is not our heavenly father. When we are at our worst, he loves to be kind and he loves to show grace, and he loves to be with us. And again, this just starts to make sense of why the gospel meant everything to Paul. He didn't have to include that phrase, that, that it was God's pleasure to, to, to show his kindness to us. He wants us to know this is who he's about. When you truly understand that you deserve nothing but hell, and are given heaven itself, a relationship with the living God, you're moved to love and gratitude that is life-changing. And understand this is about love and gratitude. It, Paul doesn't serve God because he owes it to him. Whatever debt he owed to God was paid in full by the death of Jesus. He proclaims the gospel because he loves Christ and he worships Christ and he treasures Christ. And out of that heart, he has no choice but to share the gospel no choice but to live for the gospel, no choice but to to suffer for the gospel, and ultimately no choice but to die for the gospel. I mean, we live in a world of fickle and transactional love. In fact, that's why, well, that's often what people are seeking in their false gospel: some version of love, affection, approval, admiration, acceptance. And so they live like they do, hoping in some way to gain these things, and yet it's so capricious, so unpredictable, and ultimately it's so flawed and so failed, And yet in the true gospel, our heavenly father, when we are at our worst, it brings him pleasure to show us grace. He wants to love us. He wants to be near us. He wants to be with us. And he sent his son to make that happen. And so here's what we need to remember. What will motivate us towards things like outreach and evangelism isn't some version of worldly guilt. That's often the focus of sermons you hear on evangelism right attempts to kind of motivate through guilt and guilt and fear like good christians share the gospel or or people are perishing without christ how can you not do anything and and there's truth in this I and mean, we need conviction we need heavy hearts for the lost but will actually bring change as when we worship something greater than the false gospels of the world when we love christ more than anything when we want to serve him more than anything when we want to come before him in humble worship, when it just brings us joy that others would know his greatness and his goodness and his power and his love, at that point, we'll share the gospel. The idea being false gospels, they will always fail us and will always lead to living for ourselves and failing to make Christ known. But when we love Christ, it changes everything. It leads to being bold in our faith and to being to having a counterculture courage and to be sacrificial in our giving and humble in our service. And that will never find more joy. Last reason, the gospel is worth our lives because the gospel gives us a purpose bigger than ourselves in a world of trivialities. So while the world lives for its version of purpose, whatever that may be, Christians get to live for something bigger than ourselves. And we won't spend a lot of time here because our whole message has been focused on this, but look what he says in verse 16. God was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that, uh, so there's a purpose to this, in order that I may preach him among the Gentiles. Now, Paul had this specific calling to preach to the Gentiles. Again, Gentiles are are non-Jews, most of us are Gentiles. But what this does is remind us that we weren't saved to simply enjoy the benefits of Christianity. We mentioned this in our first Peter study, but we exist in this world in large part to make the gospel known. Otherwise God might've just called us home, but instead we're here to witness. We are ambassadors for Christ. And so here's something you'll probably hear me say multiple times over the coming weeks, but I think it's really important. But ultimately Lighthouse can never be about Lighthouse. Our goal can't be to make our name great. We can't simply focus on growing numerically. Our focus can't be programs and budgets. We can't be a place that simply allows someone to fulfill their church obligation in the most comfortable way possible. We have to be about the gospel. We are ambassadors for Christ called to make him known. Let me close with this. Paul was committed to the gospel because he had been transformed by the gospel. He had experienced the risen Christ and it changed everything. Could you say the same? I was reading about Chuck Colson this week. He was famously known as Richard Nixon's hatchet man, and he went to prison because of the Watergate scandal. But before, uh, but around that time, he became a Christian, and eventually he started this nationwide prison ministry. And he was asked about how does he know the gospel is real? And he said, well, it's because when there, a group of them was caught for the Watergate scandal, they made a commitment to hold to a lie to protect the president. He said, we're religious zealots. And he said, you would've thought we'd be able to hold to this because these were some of the most powerful men in the nation, and including military, CIA, FBI. Not only that, but the position came with power and a measure of prestige, so they had both political and personal reasons to hold to the lie. And he said, you know how long we lasted? Two weeks. And then he discusses the gospel. and He says, can we, anyone really believe that for 50 years that Jesus' disciples were willing to be ostracized, beaten, persecuted, and all but one of them suffer a martyr's death without ever renouncing their conviction that they had seen Jesus bodily resurrected? I mean, does anyone believe that the disciples could have maintained a lie all that time under that kind of pressure? He said, no, someone would have cracked just as we did so easily in Watergate. And then he answers this question, so why didn't they crack? And he says, because they had come face to face with the living God, right? He says, Watergate cover-up proves that 12 powerful men in modern America couldn't keep a lie, and yet 12 powerless men 2,000 years ago couldn't have been telling anything but the truth, right? And this is Paul. He has this encounter with Christ and it changes everything. He would die for this gospel because it was the most significant thing in his life. There was nothing more important, nothing worthy of ministry, nothing greater to live for and nothing greater to die for. And it begs the question, can we say the same? Have we encountered Christ in such a way that we are changed and the gospel means everything to us? Understand, our commitment to sharing the gospel will always be a result of being changed by the gospel. And this, brothers and sisters, needs to be our hope, and it needs to be our prayer. And so will you pray with me? Dearly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the opportunities to come before your word and consider the gospel, and Lord, for us to ever be faithful to sharing that gospel, we need the gospel to change us. And so would you be so kind to show us that powerful grace change our hearts, move our affections to love you above all things. And Lord, through that, may our witness be that that no one can look at our lives, no one can look at our church and have any explanation but the gospel itself. We thank you, we love you, we praise you, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.